this God that we're talking about wants all of his creations to have a relationship with him, personal, loving relationship. And that seems to contradict that kind of character of that God. That God would not have made the universe with a resistant non-believer in it. Yeah, particularly knowing that that resistant non-believer is going to burn in hell for all eternity. Like you're you're basically making him sick and commanding him to be well to borrow from Hitchens, knowing or, that he can't get well. <laughs> no, knowing that he can't definitely yeah. because of the way you made him. It's like uh, Jesus is banging on the door, you know, let me in, let me in. Why? Because <laughs> I need to save you from what? From what I'm gonna do to you if you don't let me in? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm your host, Jordan, and with me is my co-host, Jared. How's it going, Jared? It is going. It's been uh, another busy week, and I have a really good glass of bourbon in front of me, and I'm enjoying life right now. I have a sour triple. I don't know if they call it a triple because that's a type of beer or because it has triple the amount of alcohol from a normal beer. Maybe maybe it's French and it's triple. Could be. Sour Monkey. Pretty good. Victory. They're not sponsoring this podcast, but if they want to... Hit us yeah. up. Oh, uh, <laughs> Buffalo Trace, by the way, if you want to get down on some, <laughs> some sponsorship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, alcohol is a necessity for what we're talking about tonight, uh, because tonight Jordan and I are taking on the burden of proof. That's right. Normally we mess up other people's arguments and say that doesn't work. Tonight, people are like, you guys never take on the burden of proof. Well, here you go. We're going to do it tonight. So uh, we are a uh, podcast on skepticism. And so mostly what we do is examine claims skeptically. But like Jared said, tonight we're going to take the battle to God and we're going to present some arguments that we think make it unlikely that the Christian God exists. So checkmate Christians. <laughs> take that. In a minute. Uh, but yeah. Before we before that, yeah, before <laughs> that uh, today's fallacy of the day is the argument from popularity. Hmm. So this is a great argument uh, or a fallacy, I guess, where people will often argue that something is true because a lot of people believe it's true. Right. uh, So the way that I get this a lot uh, when talking to Christians is, or theists in general, is you're an atheist. Do you really think that everyone all throughout history is wrong on God? Like how arrogant of you? Yeah. And the answer no, actually, that is, we do think that, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do actually. And if you think yeah. about it, I mean, there's, I can see why you might get there because if a lot of people believe something, especially if there are a lot of like qualified people, then maybe there's a reason why they all believe it, right? But that reason yeah. isn't necessarily because it's true. You know, a lot of people can be collectively wrong. For example, if you went back in time a few hundred years ago, Everyone, everyone knew that time was the same for everyone, right? Time just flew at the same rate for it's everybody, constant. right? Yeah. It's constant. And now through relativity, we know that's not the case. Yeah. This one also takes place where people will say like all, most Christian scholars believe that Jesus was a real man and was resurrected. Well, well maybe. <laughs> there, if they went on to say, therefore he was. Yeah, therefore, exactly. That's the qualifier. Therefore, he was resurrected. Right. Well, most Christian scholars are Christians, <laughs> and so they, they yeah. maybe they have to believe that. I don't know. There's not there's nothing wrong with appealing to a majority of scholars as evidence in the sense that, well, so the majority of people informed on this topic who are experts have this conclusion, right? Yeah, the so, fallacy is when it comes into place that you're saying, therefore. Right. Now, therefore, we should have a reasonable degree of confidence in it. If I, as a layman particularly, am going to say, well, they're wrong, then it, I should have really good reasons for that, right? But yes. um, as kind of a quick hermeneutic, you can, is that how you say it? Hermeneutic? Is that it? The, the shortcut yeah. in the brain? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's how um, I've always pronounced it, hermeneutic. Well, I'm sure someone will tell us if we're wrong. Anyways, it's probably <laughs> hermeneutic. <laughs> uh, that, that's one thing. But yeah, you, basically, just because a lot of people believe it, no matter who those people are, does not necessarily mean it's true. Yeah, and uh, just kind of in relation to tonight's episode, just just think about it. There are so many non-believers in the world. They can't all be wrong about God not existing. Or if you therefore or if you want to like go, God doesn't exist. go like for a specific God, 
Like even like there's a lot of people who don't believe the Christian God is real. How could they all be wrong? Yep. Right. Therefore, God, therefore, the Christian Christian God doesn't, doesn't exist. Exactly. So. Boom. We're done. Next episode. <laughs> and that was actually our whole argument. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's soundproof. It's valid. It's it's a good yeah. argument. I mean So Jared and I are both what are called agnostic atheists, um, also known as soft atheists. Basically, generally speaking, we don't claim that God doesn't exist because we don't have enough information to say for sure that there's no God of any description anywhere, right? But part of that is because the concept of God is ill-defined. It's not nailed down usually. It can mean a lot of different things. Just look at the huge amount of religions there are in the world throughout history, and all of them, or most of them, claim to have a God, but those gods are very different in their character, in their attributes, in their powers, etc. So it's hard to say blanketly, all of these gods are false, right? But... If we nail it down a little further and we get down into the weeds and define what kind of God we're talking about, then that might lead to some attributes that we can then like compare to the world we see. And so, for instance, if we said that uh, God detests the color purple and if this God exists, there'll be no color purple. Well, there is a color purple. Therefore, that God doesn't exist. So maybe not the best argument in the world, but I mean, that's a good example. Yeah. Uh, that's the, God, that's the God I worship. So yeah. bringing that to the Christian God, Christianity, even within that one religion, there's a huge amount of variety in what Christians believe about God. But if we kind of just take some basic tenets that most Christians would agree with, uh, we've got tri-omni, so omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. Omnipotent means he's all-powerful, phenomenal cosmic powers. So he can do anything that isn't contradictory is usually the qualifier that's given. So no married bachelors, but you know, unlimited power. He's omniscient means that he knows everything, past, present, future. He knows it all. He's never wrong. And omnibenevolent means he's all-loving. He's good. He's loving. He's kind, etc. Yeah. Uh, there's also personal, which means that in Christianity, God wants a relationship with all of us, um, and he wants us all to be saved. Uh, certain aspects of Christianity, I will say there are some sects of like Calvinism where they think there's predeterminism and all this stuff. But for the most part, American Christianity, personal God wants everyone yeah. to be saved and he wants a relationship with everyone. The New Testament specifically says so in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. It says God wants a relationship with everyone. Mm. So we're not pulling well, this out of nowhere. Bible. Yeah. Mm. Bible quotes. Uh, so the next thing, God's the creator of the universe, so he made everything. Right? So nothing happened without basically him knowing about it and causing it in some time. Um, mm-hmm. There's only the one God. No other divine beings exist. There may be like angels and demons and spirits, but like none of them can challenge the power of God. Or he may have like three separate, like equal entities, but it's still one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, one plus one plus one equals one. So, yeah. Uh, and God isn't changing. Like God doesn't change his mind because he's perfect. Right. So if he ever changed, he would go from perfection to something else. And he can't have that. Yeah. And so with all those attributes kind of in place, like those, the gods we are talking about tonight stem from those attributes. So the arguments we are making solely pertain to those attributes of God, which to be fair, encompasses a large swath of Christianity, but like Jared said, yeah. maybe there's others that wouldn't be included. If the if you're a Christian, you're listening, and you don't agree with some of those attributes, then we're not talking about your conception of God. Yeah. Congratulations, yeah. you beat the arguments. Because one of the things that we want to make clear is we're making arguments. Uh, first, they're specific, and we're not just making broad generalizations that could be applied to like we're not saying like no God exists in mm-hmm. tonight's episode, right? These arguments may apply to other gods, but that. Um, they won't apply to all gods. Yeah. So on to the arguments. We're going to do two today. The first one is going to be the problem of suffering. And the next one is going to be divine hiddenness. So hmm. uh, the first one, problem of suffering. It's pretty simple, easy to sign up. Turns out the world sucks. Uh, full of disease, you've got droughts, you've got earthquakes, you've got all kinds of terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things. And they happen to everybody. So 
what gives? If God is super powerful and powerful enough to stop everything, and he's omniscient, so he knows everything, and he's good, so we wouldn't want bad things to happen, why do bad things happen? Particularly to good yeah, people. It, exactly. Uh, this, and We've actually talked about this on the podcast uh, several times. Um Mostly, you know, like the theodicy episode, we brought this up. Uh, but tonight, I think Jordan's actually going to present an actual logical syllogism. Mm-hmm. But this is not a new argument uh, throughout history. Uh, Epicurus brought this up. He was a Greek philosopher back in the fourth century BCE. So that's before the common era for you uh, seculars. Or if you're a Christian, that would be BC before Christ. Um, uh, David Hume in the 18th century also brought it up. Um, and so it kind of goes something like this. If God is willing to prevent evil, but not able, then he is impotent. If he is able, but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing from whence then is evil? So putting it formally in a syllogism, so like a formal argument, premise one, if a good loving God exists, there would be no unnecessary suffering. Premise two, there is unnecessary suffering. Conclusion, therefore, no good God exists. Yeah. And so the arguments that we're making tonight are actually what are called deductive arguments. And so if you accept both of the premises or all the premises, uh, then the conclusion follows, meaning that it is a valid conclusion. So So the question is, is it sound? Which means are the premises actually true? Yeah. So uh, to defeat this argument... You let's just take the go down from the top to the bottom, starting with the first premise. Uh, you could just say that God isn't good. Uh, maybe if God's a jerk, just a terrible being, you know, not not a good guy, <laughs> then you would yeah. completely sidestep the entire problem of suffering. Um, so again, this is how it doesn't apply to every God, just the specific yeah. God we're talking about. Of course, most Christians aren't comfortable with just saying God is evil. That's not kind yeah. of in the wheelhouse <laughs> typically. Fit with the with the attribute of God is all loving right. or you know all good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, First John four eight says anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, which of course begs the question asked by the great twentieth century philosopher Hathaway, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. <laughs> what is love? <laughs> yeah. So. Fortunately, the Bible gives us a definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which is that Bible verse. You've heard it pretty much every wedding ever, except mine. Uh, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So such such good words. Right. So if God is patient and kind, he can't just be a jerk who likes suffering. Those two things just don't fit. Yeah. So that one I don't think holds water. Right. Like so, not if you want to hold to the Bible. So exactly. the second one, uh you could argue that a good loving God would allow unnecessary suffering. Now, the key word here is unnecessary. Because but often you're told or, or we're told we hear that or one of the theodicies, I should say, and a theodicy, for those who haven't heard the theodicy episode, are ways that address a specific problem. In fact, it's such a big problem with Christianity in general, a recognized problem by theologians, that there's a whole name just for arguments against this one thing. So uh, it's it's a thing that's well known in uh in Christian circles. So anyway, uh, one of the theodicies is that, you know, some, sometimes suffering brings about good things, right? Sometimes, you know, you're working out, you have to experience pain or uh, taking something topical, take vaccines. In order to get the vaccine, you have to get a shot. That shot hurts. So you suffer a little bit, but, and sometimes, you know, you have like a fever or something afterwards, but that suffering leads to a significant good. You don't get sick, you don't trans- transmit the virus to other people, etc. So, yeah, and you could take this further too and say like, you know, you may allow somebody to harm themselves like touching a hot stove. Like you may be a dig like, oh, he's going to touch a hot stove. He's going to get really jacked up, but he won't ever do it again. Right. Like, so, but those would be examples of necessary suffering or at least arguably necessary things that are, you needed that suffering in order to bring about something better. Right. Now, in order to get to unnecessary suffering, which is what we're talking about, suppose that we had that vaccine and there's a doctor 
who gets the vaccine, but he adds a chemical to it so that when it gets injected, it's just complete agony, like your arm is on fire. Chemical doesn't do anything at all except that. All it does is add pain. So is this doctor who's adding more suffering to his patients and not deriving any good from it, is that a good thing? Is he doing good by adding suffering? I think most people would agree that simply adding gratuitous suffering for no benefit is not a good thing. Yeah. And so that's the kind of suffering we're talking about, that a good God wouldn't allow unnecessary suffering. And so God, if he's supposed to be good, can't allow unnecessary suffering. He has goals that he wants to accomplish. They're supposedly great or whatever, and maybe suffering is required, but he has to have the minimal amount of suffering to get to those goals because otherwise he's not good. Yeah, because it, it would go against his attributes of being all-loving, right. and it would be go against his attributes of being all-powerful, meaning that he could actually prevent that. And all-knowing, because yeah. he would know the minimal What the way, minimal right? amount is, yeah. Now, you might ask, well, what about free will? You know, but, but God wants you to have free will, so it's okay. But, which, which I'm... We're going to be very careful tonight. I'm not talking about like murders and rapes and stuff like that because those could be attributed free will. I think it's debatable whether or not we have free will if the Christian God exists, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> we're focused, and also it's actually an argument against God, right. the free will. That's a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if we just focus on natural suffering, like plagues, natural disasters, stuff that isn't caused by any human's decisions, those are things that even if God has to have free will, he should be able to intervene with those, right? So, and according to most Christians, yeah, like, he does. For example, I, saw, I heard somebody say, well, let's say there was somebody who was bound to like rape and murder somebody, right? Um, God could allow this person to still want to have the desire to rape and murder someone. But when he goes to get in his car, like God makes him lose his keys, uh, somehow he, he jump starts his car and then he starts driving to the place and God pops a tire or makes him run out of gas. You know, like God is not taking away his free will, but he's still preventing that person from doing the raping and murdering. You know? Right. But even if you think that God has to allow him to go do that in order to preserve his free will, there's nothing about free will that says he has to allow that earthquake to destroy the Haitian village or whatever. You know, yeah, the natural disasters is a huge boon in the side of <laughs> so we've got taken care of the first premise god has to be good this part of his attributes and he can't allow unnecessary suffering so the second premise which uh if you recall was there is unnecessary suffering so god can't allow it now the second one is saying that there is unnecessary suffering now for this as evidence i'd say like, have you looked out your window lately? You know, <laughs> um, like children's cancer wards, mudslides, burying villages so people drown in hot mud, the whole host of parasites that cause untold pain and misery, not just now, but throughout time. The list of sufferings that happen in the world is virtually endless. And it happens yeah. everywhere to everyone. You'd have to be completely blind living in a cave somewhere to not be aware of the tremendous or completely apathetic or, yeah. or just have no yeah. empathy whatsoever to not be aware. So I think this one may be the one, if, if this argument doesn't hold, it's because of this premise, right? Because what Christians will say is that, well, we don't know, you know, that these things are actually unnecessary. Like God is omniscient. We are limited. So like our little human brains couldn't possibly perceive all the things that God knows. Right. Right. So who knows if, this mudslide didn't somehow lead extra souls to Jesus somewhere or whatever through whatever weird, mysterious things behind the scenes. Basically, this is the mysterious ways defense. Uh, now, it's a, it's a good one. I have to. So if we're talking in a deductive argument, in order to defeat this deductive argument, you only have to show that there is a possible way for it to be circumvented. Doesn't matter if that way is plausible or realistic at all. If there's any possible way around it, the logical argument is defeated. So I'd say to someone who gave me that objection, you're technically correct, which is, of course, the best kind of correct. And that's why I think, uh, in a massive twist, I think the argument I presented, the logical argument, is technically defeated. So the logical pro problem of evil is defeated. However, 
uh, we can rework the argument. Instead of being deductive, we can make it into a probabilistic argument. So first premise is unchanged. If a good... Jordan likes probabilities. I love probability. <laughs> it's kind of my thing. If a good, loving God exists, there'd be no un unnecessary suffering. Same as before. Now, the second one, therefore, there probably is unnecessary suffering. So instead of saying there is, just saying there probably is unnecessary suffering. Conclusion, therefore, that God probably doesn't exist. Hmm, I like it. So now, we because we've moved from a deductive argument to this probabilistic one, it's not enough to just show that there is a some, no matter how unrealistic way to get around it, now we're talking about probabilities. So if the Christian is going to say that there isn't, in fact, any unnecessary suffering, things are just peachy and everything's awesome, uh, they have to believe that the world we're in, the world we experience, is the one with minimal suffering. That there is no suffering that's unnecessary. And in order for that to be the case, it would mean that God couldn't cure a single case of cancer. Not one more. He's done the most he possibly could. You know, all the... Every single kid who starves to death, every single one of them was absolutely necessary in order to bring about God's will. And not a single one extra could be saved. This yeah, it's hard. It's what's hard to do because you almost lean into or delve into an appeal to emotion fallacy here, um, which you need to be careful of. Yeah, you want to be. So we're not I'm not saying that because these things are awful, God doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. What I'm saying is. So an appeal to emotion, if some, if you're not aware, it's where someone uses the emotional impact of a thing they're saying instead of having an argument. So they don't have any evidence or anything. They just use emotion. It's not the same if you have an argument that it evokes emotion because we're emotional beings. Sometimes even true logical mm -hmm. things are emotional. So uh, this isn't an appeal to emotion because I'm not saying because these things are bad, God doesn't exist. I'm saying if God existed, the God we defined we wouldn't have unnecessary suffering. Look at all of these awful things. It seems like some of these at least are unnecessary. Therefore, the God doesn't exist. And so yeah. you'd have, in order to contend that all of these things are necessary, first of all, it's kind of a, a consequence of that. You really shouldn't ever be mourning a loss. If someone gets cancer, you should be celebrating because that was a thing that had to happen in order for greater good to happen. If a child gets hit by a car or, I don't know, gets struck by lightning, that's a good thing, right? Because it was the minimal bad thing that could happen in order to bring about And ethics. it was necessary. Right. Absolutely necessary. Uh, yeah. And, and this just seems absurd. It, it doesn't seem it, – it, and it runs contrary to everything we observe, right? Now, you could also say that isn't this – uh, argument from personal incredulity, like you personally cannot conceive of a way where this could bring about better um, things, therefore it doesn't. And I can see why you might get there. However, it, it, this isn't the same as me saying, I don't understand how evolution works, therefore it doesn't, which is an argument from personal incredulity, right? We know how suffering works and we have good evidence of existence and we understand how suffering can in some cases lead to good things, and the suffering we observe does not appear to be of that type, right? Hmm. So we have, um, there doesn't seem to be a correlation between all of the suffering we observe and any kind of good. There doesn't seem to be any mechanism to get from A to B. doesn't mean a mechanism doesn't exist. But if, the if you as the Christian are going to say that such a correlation does exist, I think the burden is on you to, say, to show so, and just appealing to some vague, oh, well, mysterious ways God will take care of it. I don't think that is good enough. Yeah. I think it's important too to remember if you were going to try to refute uh, this argument uh, and the syllogisms that have been laid forth, you need to demonstrate that there is unnecessary or there isn't any unnecessary suffering. Like the argument Jordan's put forth is that there probably right. is unnecessary suffering. So if, if you're going to refute that premise, you got to... Bring some evidence yeah. to the table. You could just declare that you believe or you trust that there isn't any, and you're free to do that. But at that point, I, th I really think you need to reject all of the evidence in front of you in order to do that. I think you kind of have yeah. to cover your eyes. and Because, again, it's not that there's like a little bit of extra suffering or whatever. There can be literally none. No extra suffering. Not one tiny bit. The other thing you could do 
is just change your opinion of what God is. True. If God is not omniscient, so he doesn't like know everything, maybe he's doing his best, but you know, sometimes he messes up. Yeah. Or maybe he's not omnipotent, like he can't do everything. He's trying as hard as he can, man, but you know, he just can't pull that hard. Or yeah. maybe he's just a jerk. And you know, <laughs> well, <that's it. laughs> yeah. which is my favorite. Right. Or maybe he doesn't exist. I don't know. Maybe that. But, but, but that is not the God that we are talking about right. tonight. Though. So yeah. that is the problem of suffering. Our first of two arguments tonight. I think it's a great argument and I'm convinced and we don't even have to do the second one now. God doesn't exist. So, yeah. But I mean, like we promised we would. So, okay, let's we'll jump into <laughs> it. Right. So, the second argument is uh, the argument from divine hiddenness. So, this argument takes many versions uh, and it can be traced back throughout history, not just to the Christian God. Like, this argument is brought up through many different iterations of gods and types of gods. But today, we're focusing specifically on a very um, we're focusing on a specific argument that pertains specifically to the Christian God that we've outlined tonight. So, because one, I'm not convinced that you can reasonably claim that no God exists based solely on this argument alone. Uh, as we'll see in a minute, there are arguments that no gods exist based on this argument. I don't think they hold water. And so we're not going to present those. Um, but the argument in its simplest form basically states that if a perfect all-loving God exists, he would want a relationship with everyone of its creations and would make sure that they knew he existed in order for them to have that relationship. So God is perfect and all-loving. As somebody who's perfect and all-loving, he wants to have a relationship with everyone. This is one of the attributes that we laid out in the beginning. It's especially important because for the Christian God, uh, there's an element of punishment as well, where if you don't have this relationship... You go to hell or you suffer. And so he wouldn't want that to happen to someone. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's where the personal relationship comes in. And so the, where this argument, the hinge pin of this argument is because of that, God wouldn't allow people to not believe basically. So God, and and that God wouldn't remain hidden. Um, Yeah. So he would basically God is omnipotent. So he's all powerful and he's omniscient, right? So he knows what evidence would be required to convince any specific person, whatever it is that would convince him that he existed. He knows what it is and he's omnipotent so he can make it happen. And that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the person who is aware of God's existence would follow him. I mean, Satan is well aware of God's existence and he doesn't follow him. Yeah. But, uh, Essentially, that that would guarantee that there's nobody who, given the knowledge, would follow him is denied that knowledge. Yeah. So the the argument that I'm actually going to present tonight is um, borrowing from John Schellenberg. Uh, He's kind of revitalized the divine hiddenness argument in the past several decades. He's a philosopher from Canada, I believe, uh, and he wrote uh, a book in the 90s. But uh, so the argument that I'm presenting, the formal syllogism, uh, comes from his book. Schellenberg's argument kind of goes like this. Um, and I will premise that we are chopping off uh, the first premise and the sixth premise in its conclusion. And we're just taking out the middle because Schellenberg was making an argument for gods in general. Uh, it's not necessary for our definitions tonight because we're arguing against a very specific form of God. And so we're only going to do premises two, three, and four, and five will be our conclusion. Premise two, if there exists a God who is always open to a personal relationship with any finite person, then no finite person is ever non-resistantly in a state of non-belief in relation to the proposition that God exists. So that, that the non-resistantly part basically means that they're they're open to it, but they don't have the, the, the knowledge or whatever. Basically, everyone wouldn't be actively resisting God. There's, there'd be nobody who's like looking for God, but just not finding him. Yeah. And it's key too to point out that this person or any person who fails to believe in God, it's through no fault of their own. Like that's key for this non-resistant non-believer mm-hmm. because if it was through a fault of their own, then they would be falling to a different category, which we would call resistant non-believers. Okay. And that's uh, in Christian terms. So like, so well, you're just hiding the truth or you're suppressing the truth you know, and unrighteousness. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Yeah. So that's important to, for this one. Uh, premise three, if a perfectly loving God exists, 
then no finite person is ever non-resistantly in a state of non-belief in relation to the proposition that God exists. This follows from one and two. Uh, This one basically says that if the perfectly loving God exists, that God would make sure that everybody knew he existed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Premise four, some finite persons are or have been non-resistantly in a state of non-belief in relation to the proposition that God exists. This is basically saying that sometime throughout history, somebody believed through no, somebody didn't believe through no fault of their own that there wasn't a God. Somebody who would have been open to believing a God did not have the evidence the information and therefore didn't believe, but would believe if they'd known. Yep. Premise five, no perfectly loving God exists. This follows from three and four. So in conclusion, no perfectly loving God exists. And that's the divine hiddenness argument. Yeah. So you might have a few questions. We kind of talked about like this non-resistant non-believer thing already. Um, I consider myself a non-resistant non-believer, and I can say with confidence, I think Jordan would also put himself into that category. Right. So if you imagine, if you kind of look at a, Apologia did a good video on this, where he put people into four quadrants, right? You'd have uh, a resistance and non-resistance and a belief, non-belief. There wouldn't be any resistant believers, I wouldn't think, because if you're resisting it, you wouldn't believe. But there'd be non-resistant believers, people who aren't resistant and believe, you know. Then there are people who are resistant non-believers, people that even if you God showed up to them, no matter what, they would not believe yeah. because they're just <laughs> resisting it in their hearts or whatever. And then there's the fourth category, non-resistant non-believers, people who don't believe but are open to it. Yeah, I think he also put uh, non-resistant believers. Did you say that one? That's the one that so, I would think actually exists, the non-resistant believers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think – so if throughout any point in history – there's any, you can make in a case of any one person, it just has to be one person throughout history. And we could be going back to like old times, like Cro-Magnum, Neanderthal, like if any one of those people, which were considered one of our species, doesn't believe in God or throughout no fault of their own, then that premise holds. So you could easily say, you could just declare that there is no such thing as a non-resistant non-believer. Many people will invoke Romans 120, you know, and say that everyone knows that there's a God, or some people have said, well, God doesn't show himself to you because he knows if he did, you wouldn't believe anyway. I've heard that one before. Yeah. You, you can you can make all these assertions. And it's hard for me to prove you wrong. Like I know my own subjective experience, and I feel confident saying if I had sufficient evidence, I would believe. I used to believe back when I thought I had sufficient evidence, right? And and so I would like to think that if I was given that sufficient evidence again, if I was shown that I was wrong about being wrong, I would change my mind. <laughs> but I don't know how to prove that to anyone. Yeah, it's it's really hard to do. Um, so, but there there are arguments to prove that there are non-resistant non-believers out there, though. We don't have time to really get into them. But if if you think about um, like tribes like who live in the Amazon or something like that, who've never experienced the Christian God, they have no reason to be resistant to this kind of, uh, this God, but they don't, they don't believe in the Christian God. They've never been exposed to it. They have no knowledge of it. Therefore they would be a non-resistant non-believer. Like now I've heard the, uh, kind of response to that is kind of just a vague trust that God would deal with those people fairly. So God says that there's only one way through Jesus, to, to, to God, that's through Jesus. But, you know, if you haven't heard of Jesus, then it'll be fine. Like, God's a fair guy. He's a good guy. We can trust him, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that, that is a response to this argument. So, um, so one of the typical responses, if, if God forced us to return love, it would not be by choice and therefore not a personal relationship. It kind of gets into that. But the other part of that, too, is like, if you remember, this is a personal God who wants a relationship with everybody. So the premise is stating, if this God exists, he would make sure that none of there wouldn't be any of these yeah. people in the world. So he would reveal himself to them in some form or fashion, whatever it took to get them to believe. You remember uh, Moses and the burning bush and stuff? Well, God could easily do that for everyone. 
So yeah. God in, in the Bible has given signs and wonders to certain tribes at certain times. And then he doesn't give it to you now, but he's got this book or whatever. But basically there should be no tribe in the middle of Africa who's never heard of God because God is everywhere, right? God yeah. isn't like running a Twitter account. He's only got so many words. He could, Jesus Christ could personally appear to each and every single person. Every single person he could, if he wanted to, speaking in their language, you know? It, it, it is something well within yeah. the, the capabilities of God to do, but he doesn't. And we have precedent to believe that he did that it, through, if we believe, so if you're a Christian and you hold to this conception of God, then you already have precedent to believe that he's done that because he's done it throughout your own scriptures. You know, he did it with Paul. He did it with Moses. He did it with all Elijah, all these characters throughout the, the Bible he's done it with. So he's, he's, demonstrated that he could do it and has done it in the past. Not just to people in the Bible, but most Christians will claim, and I claimed when I was a Christian, that God had approached me, that I had this relationship with God. God had come to me and shown himself to me in some personal way. So if he can do that to you, why not to me or right. anybody else? So, so I, I've had the, a friend of mine told me, well, the reason he doesn't do this to everyone the reason he doesn't fully show himself is because if he did, that would force everyone to believe him in him, which we kind of touched on a second ago. But yeah. you know, that, that would take away your free will because nobody confronted with that would fail to believe. So I came across this argument in one uh, in a, artic, a journal article, uh, and the guy's name was Daniel Howard Snyder. He said... He must allow us to reject him, and if we did, he may quite understandably withdraw from us, given that he respects our choice and that he wants us to return to his love on our own. If we reject God, it is our fault that we fail to relate personally with him. The point here can be generalized. If we culpably shut ourselves off from God in any way, we cannot rightly expect him to act on his desire to relate personally to us. So... He, this kind of ties into like God's presented it to us and we're rejecting him or God's presented it to us and we're just shut off to the idea. And Snyder is basically saying it's on you, your fault for not believing. It's your fault. God's presented himself to you and it's your fault you don't believe. Or, or So a few things there. First of all, a great first step to having a relationship with someone is to introduce yourself. Like, like this paints God to be like that neck beard who's hiding in his basement and doesn't understand why girls aren't going out with him when he has never once approached a girl to introduce himself ever once. Like, why doesn't she like me? Because she doesn't know you exist. You know, why doesn't Jim Bob over there believe in the Christian God? Because he doesn't know it exists. You know, that that's like you didn't even take the first step. Right. I mean, like. If God wants a relationship with you and he's like, man, I'm not going to introduce myself because he's not going to love me anyway. It's like, well, give the motherfucker a chance, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, God is omniscient, right? So he would at least know ahead of time, right? So he he would at least know, but then that goes back into the non-resistant non-believer. You'd have to believe that there is not a single person on the planet ever in past, present, or future that disbelieves for genuine reasons. You basically are calling every single atheist a liar. Yeah, and it's that's really what you have to do, and not just atheists, like people who haven't even thought about it. Like some people, literally or figuratively, or haven't even considered the idea of a god. So let's do a thought experiment real quick. Um, this may verge on me making a fallacy, but I just I like this experiment. So imagine, if you will, we erased all evidence of humans on planet Earth. So I'm talking. No archaeological evidence, no writings, no nothing. Like we just said, boom, butterfly effect, no evidence of humans on earth, okay? We reformat the hard drive. All right. And then we placed a human being on this planet. Now, this human has the capacity for everyday functions, eating, drinking, shitting, all that stuff, right? They can take care of themselves. What evidence would they see for a God? Would they have anything to justify a belief? And not, not just any God, but the Christian God. But specifically the Christian God, right. So if God was a personal loving God that desired relationship with this person, 
he would have like at that point you feel like he'd be compelled to reveal himself and if he didn't reveal himself to this person how could that person possibly be held accountable right and so i guess the way the way i like the reason i like this experiment is because it kind of demonstrates like if this one person this hypothetical person if the only way that they could know or believe in god was for god to physically or emotionally reveal himself to them then that should come across the board for all humans, right? It shouldn't have to be that, you know, Jordan, you have the evidence. You have trees, man. Look at the trees. Like, <laughs> But what about babies? You know, <laughs> what about babies? Like, um, if the minimal standard is for God to actually physically or emotionally reveal himself, whatever or herself, you know. And so reaching back to what my friend told me, where someone would be forced or, or kind of what Snyder is saying, you know, he... Snyder's talking about a resistant non-believer. Yes. We're not talking about the same person that Howard Snyder is talking about. We're talking about a non-resistant non-believer. Now, my friend told me that he wouldn't show himself to someone because that would force them, right? But that means that if that he's saying every single person, if they knew God existed, would follow him. And so the only thing that's stopping them is not unwillingness to believe or anything. It's just a lack of knowledge. Which I think is a weird argument. I mean, we have Satan, obviously, who God revealed himself. And in your theology, you think was able to not follow after he was revealed. So that doesn't really hold water. So one thing that we need to keep in mind here is God created everyone, supposedly, this God. And so if God created everyone, he knew with perfect foreknowledge which of his creations would have been resistant non-believers, right? Right. Whatever it is that makes you resistant, it's some combination of your character, who you are, and your experiences, what you've been through. You can We can argue about how much is one or the other, but it's one of those two things combined to make you resistant, right? And the person who's responsible for your character is God because he made you. Right. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Yeah, even he, if even if you think that God didn't like form all of your, you know, idiosyncrasies and everything like that, God still knew the kind of person you were going to turn into as you grew up and as you were molded and he chose he chose to let that happen. Right. At the beginning of time, God knew if I made universe A, there would be a person There a, would be at least one resistant non-believer. Right. There would be this person and if, if I make this the universe the way I'm planning on making it, he will be a, a resistant non-believer. But if I make it this other way, he won't be, right? God would know that, or he wouldn't exist. God would know that. And therefore, if there is a resistant non-believer, then that's kind of on God. Right. And if you remember the argument, that this God that we're talking about wants all of his creations to have a relationship with him, personal, loving relationship. Right. And that seems to contradict that kind of character of that God. Right. That God would not have made the universe with a resistant non-believer in it. Yeah, particularly knowing that that resistant non-believer is going to burn in hell for all eternity. Like you're you're basically making him sick and commanding him to be well, to borrow from Hitchens. Knowing or, that he can't get well. <laughs> no, knowing that he can't. Definitely yeah. because of the way you made him. It's like uh, Jesus is banging on the door, you know, let me in, let me in. <laughs> Why? Because I need to save you from what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, th that's a good point. And I think it's, it's definitely worth noting. Um, yeah, I think this, this argument is actually one of my uh, favorite arguments. And I think it's a solid argument, like. Like if you go through, like it takes some serious mental gymnastics to try to refute this so, argument. Kind of like the first one. I think that in a logical, deductive, must believe it kind of way, this argument doesn't do that because I can conceive of a way where God wouldn't show himself to everyone. However, in order to believe that, I have to believe a lot of other things that seem ridiculous. You know, so I could yes. believe that maybe God is omniscient and he knows that if he revealed himself to me, it wouldn't help. And so he doesn't or whatever. I could understand that. However, um, so logically it's defeated. But that would then imply that every single person who doesn't believe in the Christian God, not a single one of them, not one, would believe if they were given the, 
the information, that seems ridiculous. That that stretches credulity to the breaking point. Yeah, it's most probably even this crowd doesn't exist. Even <laughs> if it was a one in a billion chance, like only one in a billion people, point oh oh whatever, how many zeros percent? Like, come on, not a single one of those people is a reasonable person who would change their mind given evidence. Not a single one. Yeah, and I mean that also like. If if you just look geographically, where are most Christians? They're in Christian places. Like they clump up. You know, you have small amounts of Christians everywhere, but a nation that is predominantly Christian, if you're born there, you're more likely to be Christian, right? And if you're born in India, you're more likely to be Hindu or Muslim and so on. And so it, you'd have to say that only the people, the people who are reasonable and willing to believe things based on the evidence, they just so happen to only be born in Christian places to Christian parents. What is going on? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and that brings up another point. Like, uh, so when I was a, a Christian, I participated in missionary work uh, quite often through like my youth group in my church. Every year, we would go and and do things. And the sole purpose of that was to introduce God and the gospel to non-believers, people who hadn't been exposed. We went to like you know foreign places. You know, obviously, uh, there's a lot of capital. Uh, what do you call it? Um, imperialistic stuff. Anyways. So even within Christian thought, there's this idea that God hasn't revealed himself to everybody, right? Like it's part of our, our part of Christian thinking. Otherwise, why would we need missionaries? Otherwise, why would we need missionaries, right? God should have already revealed himself to them. Right. So yeah. to sum it all up neatly, God says he wants to have a personal relationship with everyone. If he was good and loving, he wouldn't punish someone for not having a relationship out of, you know, no through no fault of their own. There exists some people somewhere at some time who, if they were given evidence of God, they would believe. God did not give evidence to those people. Therefore, he isn't the God that is personal, loving, etc. He isn't the Christian conception yeah, that of God. God doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. So there you have it. Two arguments accepting the burden of proof, well, probabilistic proof at least, that yeah. the Christian God that most Christians hold to doesn't exist. If you really stretched me, I might actually hold on to the, the divine hiddenness argument as a deductive argument. I would have to get into some deep, deep like back and forth and stuff to like really not, because we're doing a basic level, you know, thing here. But for me, the probabilistic one is enough. Like I'm yeah. fine with there being a small, unrealistic, trivial kind of case where it still works. I'm happy to dismiss that because in my mind, I kind of go on the same line of reasoning that Galileo used. I refuse to believe that the same creator who gave me a mind and endowed me with consciousness intended to forbid me its use. I, I I have to believe that if there is in fact a God and that God is in fact a fair, loving, kind, just God, like I'm told he is, I am doing, I, all I'm doing is assessing the evidence, honestly, doing my very best to find out truth. I have to believe that if God is actually all those things, that would buy me something, right? Yeah. It's like uh, Bertrand Russell was asking, like, what, what would you ask God when you, <laughs> if you ever met him? He'd be like, you didn't give me enough evidence. Why not? Yeah. Like, what gives, bro? <laughs> what gives? Like, he didn't stay quite like that, but that was basic, you know, like, yeah, not enough evidence. I might have some harsh words personally, but <laughs> like, yeah, well, I mean, leukemia, what's up with that, man? Leukemia. Yeah, seriously. Uh, lots of diseases. But if you give some thought to these, not just you, Jordan, but like our listeners, give some thought to the arguments that we put forth tonight. Um, if you find some holes in them, let us know. I mean, we're perfectly capable and willing to have a dialogue and, and we actually want to have a dialogue with people and, and start this discourse where we can kind of go back and forth. Because as we've stated many times before on this podcast, if we're wrong, we want to know. Yeah. I, I was asked recently if how central to my identity, my atheism was. And I responded that my, I don't know exactly, but I know my skepticism is far more important to me as an identity, because if I was given sufficient evidence to God, I'd become a believer. I'd still be a skeptic yeah. though. Like I'd stop being an atheist, but I would still be skeptical. Yeah. So 
I'm not beholden to my atheism at all. I'd be happy to change my mind. I'm not completely sure that if I knew the Christian God exists, I would worship him. But I can tell you for a fact, I'd stop being an atheist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a good, I never thought about that recently, but I mean, I haven't thought about that at all, but I don't know how much of my life I walk around thinking about myself as an atheist. It only comes up when somebody asks me about it or if I'm in a conversation with a theist, like normally I barely crosses my mind. So I would say that part of my identity like has nothing to do with atheism. Um, so, I mean, but skepticism, but if I wasn't an atheist, what would I do with all these fedoras? Yeah. Atheism is kind of like a hobby, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the one thing I think we, about my identity though, is like people will often look at skeptics and they think cynics. And I think that's something that I wish we could, change in like American culture. We've said it before, but all skepticism really is at its core is believing in things that you have evidence for and not believing things you don't have evidence for. You, someone makes a claim. That's cool. What's your evidence? You don't have any. Well, then I don't believe you. It's that simple. That sounds so cynical though. (laughs) So (laughs) if you believe that you've got sufficient evidence that we exist and this podcast exists, it would be a huge help to remove the hiddenness of this podcast and bring it to other people mm. uh, by rating it on whatever platform you use to listen to it. If it's on YouTube, drop a comment or something, give it to a friend if you think they'd enjoy it. Like Jared said, if you have criticism, we'd love to hear that too. You can reach us at on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash reason to doubt. And I'm number two. Yeah, the number two, which if you're listening to this, you probably already know that. And we're also on Twitter now because we're hip and young and cool. And the handle there is press X underscore to doubt. And I just realized it's rather confusing because that is not the number two. (laughs) That's probably an oversight on my part. Uh, The good thing is people just have to click buttons on links now. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely should have thought that one through. But just think about this, though. If you really want to cause, like, make sure there's no unnecessary suffering in the world, you don't know what would happen if you didn't share this with all your friends and family. That's true. It may cause suffering. Yeah. I can't say it will, but I can't say it won't either. So just to be safe, you should give this to everyone. Yeah. We don't want to cause any suffering. So just share it with everybody. Just (laughs) (laughs) street corners with the little sign over top of you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) I don't know how to close (laughs) after that. (laughs) Just remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.